Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man's name was Eliamelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could, who could then become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord, Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, 
her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Allie, and I'm one of the pastors here. It is a delight to be worshiping with you this morning. It's been a while since I've been up here at that, per se. My last sermon was uh, what I like to call BC, before Claire. (laughs) Claire's the one who had a lot of opinions about Britain's sabbatical. I took some time off the preaching rotation to Uh, get used to the joys of motherhood, and uh, Claire has been working on winning hearts in establishments all across the North Shore. If you want a piece of parenting advice, if you have a baby, plan extra time for your errands, because everyone wants to stop and talk to your baby. Not to you, to your baby. But I am so glad to be uh, diving into Ruth with you this morning. Each week before we get into the sermon, it's our practice to take a moment in silence to set aside any distractions from the morning, to quiet our hearts, to ask God to speak to us through his word. So let's sit in silence. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would be present here with us this morning, that you would be using your word, your scripture, to be teaching us. May you help us have the ears to hear and the hearts to hear what you have for us this morning. May our time together be glorifying to you. Amen. Well, as a kid, I really loved to read. Historical fiction, sci-fi, fantasy. If it was fiction, I was interested. And one summer, I discovered the particular delight of a choose-your-own-adventure book. These stories always featured a wild adventure, like encountering aliens or traveling through time. But instead of reading about another character getting to have all the fun, you were in the story. You, the reader, get to make choices. Throughout the story, at times of conflict and danger or crisis, you get to make a decision. Actually, you have to make a decision for the story to continue. Like, say you found a hidden treasure, but as you're exiting the cave, you're attacked by a band of thieves. Oh no, do you try to make a quick escape down the sandy path? Or do you stay and try and fight off the thieves? Turn to page 60 for escape and 74 for fight. For the record, the correct choice in the circumstance is to fight because we all know that a sandy path means quicksand. These decisions are risky. One wrong choice and your story could be over. Choose poorly and you could end up flame broiled by a dragon, dehydrated in the desert, or arrested by intergalactic peacekeepers. And that sense of danger is thrilling. The suspense is pleasurable. It is fun to play the swashbuckler and make risky decisions, as long as the peril stays on the page, or on the screen, or in the game. As soon as we're making risky decisions that can affect our well-being in real life, we're probably having a lot less fun. 
It's one of the hardest parts about being an adult human. Facing questions like, what do we do when we lose our job? Which job should we take? Where can we afford to live? How do we best care for our family? Where do we go? Who can we turn to? How are we going to get out of this mess? Sometimes, like in the stories, we're choosing between options. Other times, it's like we can't see a way forward. And we would love for some all-knowing narrator to put two options before us. At least that narrows it down a bit. Whatever the circumstances, at some point or another, we all face that gnawing question. How do we proceed? Well, this morning, we're beginning our new sermon series, Ruth, the Extraordinary Faithfulness of Ordinary People. Most of us are used to learning about the extraordinary people in Scripture, which makes sense. The Bible is full of extraordinary people and extraordinary circumstances. You've got God speaking from a burning bush to Moses, Jonah surviving being swallowed by a fish, Jesus walking on water. There are kings and queens, pharaohs, royal officials, multiple people coming back to life. Well, the, the book of Ruth has none of that. Instead, the book of Ruth is a short story about normal people. The narrator of Ruth doesn't even mention God. It's just some widows and a guy with a field. Regular, normal people who make faithful choices in their regular, normal lives. Each week, we'll walk through the story and take a look at how the characters make decisions that reflect the desires and the heart of God. But first, we need to set the scene for Ruth. The book of Ruth is a historical narrative. This is a story about real people that lived in a real place at a real time. And so to help us understand the story, what the characters are going through, and the choices that they make, we need to have some understanding of the world that they're living in. And lucky for us, the very first verse of Ruth gives us a lot of context in very few words. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. This is a very specific and very terrible time in Israelite history. To gloss over a lot of history very quickly, God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them into the land he had promised them. And God himself was supposed to be their king. Sounds great, right? It should have been. Except that the Israelites went wild. Instead of being faithful to God and following his leadership, everyone did as they saw fit. And so the time of Judges is characterized by a cycle. The people strayed and worshipped other gods. Then God removes his hand of blessing and allows foreign nations to oppress Israel. Then the people cry out to God for help. God hears their cry and raises up a judge or a military leader to deliver them from the oppression. Then the people in gratitude repent and turn back to God for like a hot second before turning back to false gods and starting the cycle over. This happens over and over and over again. And so the story of Ruth takes place during one of those cycles. 
during a period in Israel's history when unfaithfulness was rampant. And perhaps not completely unrelated to this rampant unfaithfulness, at the beginning of the story, we find out that there's a famine in the land. And then we're introduced to an Israelite family, a man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilian. Due to the famine, this family decides to leave their home in Bethlehem and Judah to go to the land of Moab to find food. And the fact that they went to Moab is pretty not great. See, Moab was a neighboring land with whom the Israelites had a long and bitter history. The Moabites were believed to be distant relatives born from embarrassing and shameful actions of Father Abraham's nephew Lot and his family. But the true source of the grudge goes back to the days when the Israelite people were wandering and starving in the desert. When the Israelites tried to pass through Moab, not only did the Moabites try to prevent them from passing through, but they refused to give the Israelites food or water. The Israelites were starving. They were dying of thirst. The Israelites even offered to pay the Moabites, but still the Moabites refused. That was pretty low. So of course, the Israelites weren't very fond of the Moabites. Notice that the author, Ruth, says twice that Elimelech and his family went to live in Moab. The second half of verse 2 says, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. The author's saying, this family was one of us, but they left us. They left our land, they left our people, and maybe even our God, to go there. They left us when we were starving to go live with a, in a land of people that refused to feed us. At best, Elimelech and his family are being painted as fair-weather Israelites, no longer committed to the home team when things aren't going their way. So to recap, we've got this Israelite family living during a time of widespread unfaithfulness who have left the promised land to go live amongst a foreign people. Not good. Towards the beginning of their time in Moab, Elimelech dies. As the patriarch, it was Elimelech's responsibility to feed and clothe and protect his family. After his death, that resp responsibility passes on to Elimelech's sons, Mahan and Kilian. So while they're grieving, this family has to figure out how to survive in this strange land. So Mahan and Kilian, presumably, with Naomi's blessing, marry Moabite women, and they start to make a life among the people. Now, if that's raising any red flags for you, that's because you know that taking foreign women as wives was a huge no-no under the Mosaic Law. To be clear, God does not have an issue with people from different ethnicities marrying one another. What he does have an issue with is idolatry. Other groups of people all had their own gods. The Moabites, for example, worshipped their patron god, Chemosh. So God prohibited marrying foreigners so that none of his people would be led astray by their spouse. So this family wasn't really supposed to be in Moab. 
and they definitely weren't supposed to have Moabite wives. Even so, they lived in Moab for 10 years together as a family. Naomi, Mahan, Kilion, Orpah, and Ruth. And after 10 years of living together in Moab, tragedy strikes. Both of Naomi's sons die. The pain and the grief of losing a loved one can be devastating. A surprise loss or an untimely loss can be particularly hard. It can leave us reeling and trying to catch our breath. This is not the way it's supposed to go. A parent should not outlive their child. This can't be happening. But Naomi and her daughters-in-law didn't have time to dwell in their grief. At this time, a woman's security was found in having a male relative to take care of her. Men were sources of both protection and provision. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, had died years ago, and while that was sad, she still had two sons to take care of her then. She had a plan B and a plan C. But now both of her sons have died, leaving not one but three widows without a man to provide and care for them. How would they survive? Who could they turn to? What were they going to do? These women are in danger, they are in crisis, and they have decisions to make. Naomi had heard that the Lord had provided food once again in the land, so she and her daughters-in-law set on, back on the road to Judah. But Naomi didn't really intend for her daughters-in-law to go with her. She tells them, go back to Moab. Go back to the land of your mother's home so that hopefully they could remarry, start over, have security. When they refuse and cry, because who can just walk away from family that you've lived with for 10 years Naomi continues to push with hypotheticals to show that she can't support them. Naomi is past childbearing age. She is off the marriage market. Even if the impossible were achieved and Naomi managed to get married and have a son, by the time her son would be ready to be married to Ruth or Orpah, they would be too old. This train of thought might sound like absolutely wild to you. But back then, there was this custom of leveret marriages. The next male in line had a duty to marry their relative's widow so that she would not be left destitute. It was an added safety net, an ancient life insurance policy, a way to prevent a situation like Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are facing. Naomi goes through the possible scenarios, but there is no solution with her to be found for Orpah and Ruth. So Orpah goes back to try and marry one of her people. This is not a bad choice. It was the only choice presented to Orpah, the only way forward. She does what is expected of her with affection for her mother-in-law. Ruth, however, Ruth chooses her own adventure. She creates her own choice. She puts her foot down and makes a promise an oath before God to stick by Naomi's side. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. 
May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth declares to Naomi that not only is she determined to go with Naomi, but she is willing to turn away from everything familiar about home to be by Naomi's side. Ruth is willing to leave behind her friends, her neighbors, her family to go with Naomi. When she says that she will be buried with Naomi, Ruth is declaring to Naomi, you are my family. You are buried with family and I wanna be buried with you. Even though Ruth's husband, the tie that originally bound them together was gone. They are still family. Ruth is willing to leave behind customs and traditions that she's familiar with. She's willing to live among a people that do things differently than she's used to. She's willing to be an outsider. Ruth is willing to leave behind the God of her people, Chemosh, the God she was raised to trust. And Ruth is so committed to staying with Naomi that she converts on the spot. It's curious that Ruth doesn't use the generic name for God, Elohim. She uses the intimate, personal name that only the Israelites used. She used the word Yahweh. Ruth is serious about following Yahweh. Now we have to admit that we have no idea how much Ruth knew about Yahweh. No idea. Naomi and Elimelech didn't make super faithful decisions by going to Moab and having sons marry Moabite women, but maybe the rest of their lives exuded more faithfulness. Maybe Ruth overheard Naomi saying the Shema every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Or maybe Naomi told Ruth stories about God's faithfulness to her people about God rescuing her people from slavery, giving them chances over and over again to be faithful, about God leading them to the promised land and hearing their cries for help. Maybe Ruth had heard. It certainly seems plausible that over 10 years of living together, they swapped some stories, but we can't know for sure. Either way, Ruth chooses Naomi and Ruth chooses Yahweh. In a time period of rampant unfaithfulness, Ruth, the Moabite, a foreigner, chooses to reflect the heart of God. One of the key characteristics attributed to God is his chesed. Can you say that with me? Chesed. There we go. One more time. Chesed. Yeah, you really got to get the There are a lot of ways chesed might be translated in your Bibles. You might see it as mercy, kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love, or loyal love. You'll find different translations for it because we don't have an equivalent term in English. I love the way the Bible Project explains it. Chesed is a word that combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment into one. Love generosity, and enduring commitment. God's chesed is displayed all throughout scripture because chesed is part of who God is. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God's people fail to uphold their commitments to the covenant, the covenant that they made with God. Leaders like Moses call out to God when he has every right to punish them 
and ask God not to act out of his need for justice, but instead out of his chesed. Every time God treats the Israelites better than they deserve, he does so because of his love, generosity, and enduring commitment towards his people. He does so because of his chesed. Hesed is what we're observing, observing in Ruth when she promises to stick by Naomi's side. Naomi was right in her speech to her daughter-in-law. She had nothing to offer them. Naomi has no security she can offer Ruth. Ruth has nothing to gain by sticking with Naomi. And yet, Ruth, out of her love for Naomi, out of her generosity, out of her enduring commitment to Naomi, promises to stay by Naomi's side and try to care for her. Ruth shows Hesed not by turning back. Ruth shows Hesed by caring for Naomi, by staying with her. Ruth reflects God's character and heart in her decision to care for Naomi. Likewise, when we find ourselves navigating tough situations, when we're wrestling with decisions that feel risky, when we're faced with that same gnawing question, how do we proceed? The answer always includes by reflecting the heart of God. Ruth leaned into the hard situation in front of her. She knew it was probably going to be more challenging to continue on and care for Naomi than to go back. It definitely would have been easier for her to turn back, to go back what she already knew. But Ruth didn't shy away. Instead, she embraced Naomi with love and, no and loyalty. And we're called to that enduring presence as well. We're called to step into hard things with people, to embrace others with steadfast love. We don't only look to Ruth as our example, but also this is what we see in Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection all proclaim his chesed for us. Jesus entered the world not, while we, not only while we were still broken and sinful, but because we were still broken and sinful. Jesus came to be Emmanuel, God with us, because we were completely unable to live the way we were created to live on our own. He stepped straight into our mess, living in it alongside us to show us who he is. He didn't shy away from the hardship, but he suffered on our behalf, dying a shameful death on the cross. In his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated death and the power of sin and shame so that we could live in a loving relationship with God forever. Love generosity, and enduring commitment. This is what we see in the person of Jesus. That is who our Savior is, and it is what he has done for us. So yes, in all times, in all times of joy, in all times of trouble, we are called to do likewise. But what does that actually look like in our lives? What does it look like to reflect God's heart? How do we do this? 
Well, if you're trying to make some risky decisions, if you're looking for a step-by-step -step instruction guide for the predicament that you're in, the good news, and maybe the more challenging news, is that there are so many ways that we can do this. And in a lot of circumstances, there's no one right action. The best encouragement I can give to you is to continue to spend time learning about the character of God and about the heart of God. We cannot reflect what and who we do not know. Specifically, I encourage you to continue reading scripture and ask yourself these questions. What is God doing? And why is God doing what God is doing? There are some pretty wild stories in the Bible. And these wild stories can leave us feeling a bit confused as to what the point is. And these questions help us not get lost. They help us to not be distracted by the crazy characters or the circumstances. They help us focus on discovering who God is and what he cares about. And that discovery is the first step towards reflecting God's character in our lives. We have to know who God is so we can reflect God. One other practical thing you can try this week is thinking generously of those you're with. This is a concept that we come back to quite often here at Anchor Bay. And I'm reminding you again today because it's the reminder that I need today. It's a simple thing, but it's not an easy thing. When we are feeling stuck in a hard circumstance, when we are struggling in a conflict, when we have risky decisions to make, when we don't know which way to go, we can feel vulnerable and raw. And when we are feeling vulnerable and raw, every prickly word or action can be interpreted as a deliberate insult or attack. Suddenly, we start thinking things like, I can't believe he would say such a thing. Or she clearly doesn't care about this family. Or he's so selfish. Or just the audacity. I know I'm guilty of hopping aboard this train of thought. And I mean, could you imagine if Ruth had heard from Naomi when Naomi was like, hey, go back home, and she heard, I hate you, leave me if she had made a different choice out of her raw, prickly self, the little gremlins in her mind. It's so easy to lead with those feelings when we're stressed. And it sure makes it hard to want to continue stepping into hard things. It makes it hard to want to continue to embrace other people. It makes it hard to want to love people. Instead, it makes me want to ditch them and run. So instead, let's pause and let's think generously. Instead of rushing to conclusions about intentions, let's be curious. Ask yourself, am I interpreting this message or this situation correctly? Is there any other way those words or those actions may have been intended? Is there a reason outside of our relationship maybe that might be contributing to our interaction? It takes practice, and I very much am still working on it. But by pausing and choosing not to assume the worst, by instead thinking generously, 
that in and of itself is a way that we can reflect God's heart. We can show hesed love, enduring commitment, and generosity by approaching our relationships and our interactions this way. All of this, all of this, becoming people who reflect God's heart, even in challenging circumstances, it takes practice. The good news is that we can get practice in showing chesed when we aren't struggling ourselves. We can practice chesed by showing up for other people who are facing hard times. And church, that's something that we know how to do. We do that every time we pray for those who are experiencing hardship. We do that every time we take a meal to someone who has lost a loved one or who has had surgery or who recently had a baby. We do that every time we visit someone who is sick or who is feeling lonely. We do that every time we check in, every time we sit and just listen. We can and we do show love, generosity, and enduring commitment in so many ways. So let's keep at that. Let's keep learning about God's heart. Let's keep learning about God's character. Let's keep practicing being people who can reflect God's character. And hopefully, when we find ourselves in crisis, we, like Ruth, can reflect God's chesed to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the perfect example of hesed, of love, enduring commitment, and generosity that we find in you and in your son, Jesus. Thank you for this woman, Ruth, a Moabite foreigner, who's included in your story because of her love, enduring commitment, and generosity. Keep growing us to be people that can be show hesed to others around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.